And praise God. You may be you may be seated. If you have your Bibles today, I want to encourage you to open up to Romans chapter 13. Uh, if you got a note sheet on the way in, I hope you did, and you're ready to take some notes today. Some of our community groups are meeting the end of this week. And uh, so if you're in a community group, if you're not in a community group, I encourage you to, to sign up. You can go online and find all the different community groups that are happening. But if you're in one, make sure you take some good notes, okay, so you can participate. Um, we're getting closer and closer to the end of this great letter by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And if we stay on schedule, uh, we're going to finish Romans probably on Palm Sunday, okay? And then right after Easter, we're planning to go into a, a deep dive into the book of Genesis, okay? With everything that's taking place in the world around us, I think it's good that we understand God's order and his structure and his plan, amen? And so we're going to look at Genesis together. We're going to look at uh, the plan of God for his creation. And I just got to say this, it is a plan that ultimately leads to flourishing, but before we get there, we have three more chapters in the book of Romans. Now, if you remember, I said about a month ago that this last part of the book of Romans, from chapter 12 on, uh, becomes some very practical theology, okay? After telling us all about who God is and who we are and the wrath of God and God's plan of salvation for our lives, Paul's going to tell us, now here's how you should live. He says, in light of that, we should present our bodies as a living sacrifice, right? We should not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And when that takes place, we are actually able to discern what God's will is for our lives. Paul, of course, goes on from there to talk about the operation of the spiritual gifts within the church body. And then the last two weeks, we looked at these exhortations from Paul on how we are to live primarily with those in the church, but also what our attitudes should be like towards outsiders or towards those who wrong us. We looked at some challenging words, right, from the apostle regarding how we respond to our enemies. When someone wrongs us, we are not to take vengeance. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. We're not to curse them. Instead, we are to bless them. And now as we begin chapter 13, Paul's going to tell us how we should respond to authority in our life. Now, before we read there, let me tell you why it's so important that, that Paul address this issue within the church in Rome. Because I believe this, that there had to be some within the church that were beginning to question, how do we respond to the governing authorities in our days? Since these believers had come to Christ, they placed their hands in the hands of a king, right? The king of kings, King Jesus. And Jesus said this, my kingdom is not of this world. And so the early Christians were taught that the king that we follow is not the king of this world. Ultimately, our loyalty is to a heavenly kingdom, amen? And so we who are in Christ, we've been taken out of the citizenship of this world, and we've been translated and made citizens of a, another kingdom. And because of that, we're told that in this world we are aliens and we are strangers. In other words, this world is not our home. Now, when we have that understanding, then the question comes to the surface, right? Then how do we address the governing authorities of this place when, technically speaking, this is not our home? That's what Paul's going to address here in chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now, it's been said that there are two things that you don't discuss in polite company, politics and religion. Okay, pray for me, because we're going to talk about both of them today, okay? Because that's, that's where our text takes us, okay? And I have to say this at the outset, that as a pastor what I see is a great deal of confusion within the church about the role of government and what our relationship as Christians should be to the government. 
I think it's a good question to ask, right? What is the Christian's role in the world of politics? What should our emphasis be? Now, if we understand that we are citizens of a greater kingdom, and at the same time we are citizens of this nation, then I believe we ought to be able to balance politics and faith. And I believe that God has placed us here for such a time as this. And so we can't just hide out. We can't just keep to ourselves. We can't be uninformed and uninvolved as to what's happening in the world around us. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 what is known often as the high priestly prayer. And his prayer to the Father for his disciples, that includes us. He said this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. God has not removed us from this world yet, right? And so we live in this world, and yet we know this, that as we live in this world, the Father can keep us from the evil one. Are you thankful for that today? That's the promise, that he can keep us from the evil one. And I don't believe, personally, I don't believe this, that Jesus intended for us to live in caves and monasteries. (laughs) We're living here in this world, and so we have certain obligations in this world. It's almost like we have dual citizenship. We carry one passport here, and one passport in the world to come. You know, I've made it a a point in my own ministry to never endorse a political candidate from the pulpit. But I want to challenge you this way. There are things that are taught from the Word of God, and, and if the Word of God, as the Word of God is taught, it causes you to question your political affiliation, that's okay, okay? Because your identity is ultimately not in a political party, at least I hope it's not. Rather, your allegiance as believers is to the kingdom of God, amen? And if we're praying, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, then we ought to live our lives in that way. And so here's my prayer for you in what looks to be, let me just say it, a very contentious election year, okay? My prayer is that you would get out and vote, and that even as you vote, you would vote your values, and you would say, you know what, neither candidate is perfect, and so Father, guide me in a decision that would help to build your kingdom, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done, amen? Uh, Again, I find a number of Christians who think that we as believers, we should not get involved in politics. And there's a lot of reasons for that type of thinking. One reason is that we can look at politics and we can see it as dirty, it's like kind of almost beneath us, right? We'll, We'll say things like, all politicians are crooks, right? I've heard people say, well, if if I go and vote, I'm only voting for the lesser of two evils, so why does it matter? Listen, as long as Jesus' name is not on the ballot, you will always be voting for the lesser of two evils, right? But that doesn't mean you should not vote, okay? In this case, I I think we need to ask God, what would he have us to do? But but maybe you're here today and you're just tired of politics. You're, you're tired of all the scandals. You want nothing to do it, with it, right? I also think that there are, are believers who've just given up hope. They would say, man, it's too late for America. We are past the point of no return. We, we, we just need to brace ourselves because judgment's coming, right? And, and there are times, if I'm honest, where I could fall into that way of thinking, man, it's too late, there's far too much evil, there's far too much corruption, what difference can we make? And, and while I do believe that we are headed swiftly towards judgment if we do not repent, I also don't want to simply give up on America. I'm not ready to throw in the towel and say that's it. I believe that there is hope for America if, and it's a big if, if we repent. If you read through the book of Judges, one thing is clear, that our God would rather forgive and restore than judge. He would rather forgive and restore than judge. Over and over again through the book of Judges, you, you see the people of Israel, right? They, they turn their back on God and then the warning comes and they repent and God forgives them and God restores them. 
But the restoration, hear me, it was always conditional on their repentance. But the number one reason that the Christians, I think, are retreating from the political realm is that they've been intimidated. They, they've heard this phrase, separation of church and state. Anybody ever heard that before, right? And, and so they've actually begun to believe that they have no place bringing their faith into government, the government sector. But just so we are clear, I want you to know that phrase of separation of church and state does not appear in our Constitution. It does appear in another document known as the Communist Manifesto written by Karl Marx, but it doesn't appear in our Constitution. But the idea really found its way into the U.S. from a letter that was written by President Thomas Jefferson. He was writing to the Danbury Baptist Association, and he was assuring them that he would keep government out of the church. And so the real point that he was making is that in the United States, there will never be a government-sponsored church. And I, for one, think that's a good thing. Eventually, there would be a government-sponsored church in Rome, and that's when things began to kind of go off the track, if you will. And so the First Amendment to the Constitution says this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. If we're going to talk about separation of church and state, understand it's meant to be a one-way street. It's meant to keep the government from controlling the church. It's meant to keep the government from telling us when we can meet and how we can meet and whether it's safe to sing or not. Are you with me? And, and I know there are those that will argue the other way and say, no, no, the, the point is to keep both of them separate. You stay over here, we'll stay over there, right? But let's think logically about this for a moment. When our first president, right, history question, was it, what was his name, our first president? George Washington, great job, I was worried for a minute. George Washington, when he took the oath of office, what did he put his hand on? The Bible. Do you know that his first act as the president, he kissed the Bible, and then he led a two-hour praise session in Congress? Sessions of Congress back then were always opened with prayer, and the prayer was led by a chaplain who was paid by tax dollars, right? Does it sound like our founding fathers were trying to keep the church out of government? I don't think so. And God we trust was placed on our currency, not because someone pulled a fast one and kind of snuck it in there, right? I hope nobody sees this, right? It was actually adopted by Congress in 1956. If you go all the way back to 1776, 11 of the 13 original colonies required that you would be a believer in order to be eligible to even run for a political office. 1977, check this out, the, the Continental Congress took a vote and approved spending $300,000. That's a lot of money in 1977, right? But their goal was to purchase 20,000 Bibles that they would distribute throughout the nation because they knew this, that if we can get the word of God in people's hands, it's gonna change our, our nation, amen? 94% of the writings of our founding fathers of the United States contain at least one quotation from scripture. All 50 state constitutions mention the word God. If you have a chance to, to go to Philadelphia, first of all, get a cheesesteak, because you gotta do that. But has anybody ever gone to see the Liberty Bell, right? Liberty Bell, on the Liberty Bell, there is a, an inscription of Leviticus 25.10. It says, proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto the inhabitants thereof. You know, even in L.A., yes, Las Vegas, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, Los Angeles, <laughs> my mind's on the Super Bowl, <laughs> the city, the, over the city wall door are these words, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. President John Adams wrote in 1798, our constitution was made only for immoral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. 
Our sixth president, John Quincy Adams, said, no book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated upon as the Bible. At the Constitutional Convention in 1787, Benjamin Franklin said, God governs the affairs of man. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? So many quotations from our presidents through the years. Just can give you a, a few of them, a few more. Harry Truman, our, our 33rd president, he was known to, to be a committed believer. He understood the spiritual heritage that we held as a nation. He said this, if men and nations would but live by the precepts of the ancient prophets and the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, problems which now seem so difficult would soon disappear. President Rank, Ronald Reagan said this, if we ever forget that we are one nation under God, then we will be one nation gone under. And, and so as we look at our civic responsibility as believers, the question is not should a Christian be involved in government, the question is can you be the Christian that you're commanded to be and not be involved? For those of you who have children in the Clarkstown School District, you need to be aware there are some very harmful decisions being made by the school board. There are suggestions being passed down by the state that are now being approved by the school board that will have an impact on your children. And so I would say this, if you have children in the Clarkstown School District, you cannot not get involved, okay? We, we need to be salt and light in the world around us. But for all of us as believers, again, we need to be aware of what's taking place around us. We have the opportunity to speak up and, and let our voice be heard, and we should take that opportunity. Now, going back to our text, all right, going to our text, the, the first thing that Paul writes is this. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. It's a very strong statement about the rights of our government, right? They have the right to rule, but also our responsibility to support that government. Now, why should we do that? It's because that human government is ordained by God. That's what he says next. He says, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. They've been instituted by God. God has established three institutions we see clearly. Number one is the home. Secondly is the church. And finally, the government. These all have been instituted or ordained. What does that mean? It means they originate with God. It was his idea. The idea of the family structure, it's his idea. It's one of the reasons we don't get to redefine it, right? He set governments in place to keep law and order. I hope you know today that our God is a God of order, not chaos, okay? He has established certain laws for the flourishing of his people. You know, when the Antichrist is described in Scripture, he's described as the man of lawlessness, and so you have to ask yourself, what side are you on? The side of laws that lead to flourishing or lawlessness that leads to chaos. You and I are subject to the government that God has ordained. Now, you could ask the question, but what if that government is evil, right? What if that government is going in a direction I don't agree with? We're going to talk more about that later on because there is a place for civil, keyword civil, disobedience. But remember who Paul's writing this letter to. He's writing it to the church in Rome. Paul is writing this letter as a new Caesar has come to power in Rome, Caesar Nero. And he's issued a an edict that cr makes Christianity illegal. And yet Paul is saying, be subject to the governing authorities. He's talking about being subject to the authority, the very same authority that had crucified Jesus. 
Now, and when he says governing authorities, understand this is all powers that be. It, it is all who are in a position of authority, and so he makes it clear there. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. You could ask the question, well, what kind of government is God's government, right? Ideally, his plan for Israel was that they would be a monarchy and he would be their king, right? But if you look at the history of Rome, it's interesting. It had been a monarchy for a while. It was a republic. At this point, it is an empire under the rule of an emperor. What kind of government do we have here in America? What's our government? If you say democracy, that's wrong. Okay, America is a republic. If you know the pledge, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. Now, what's the difference, you could say? What's the difference between a democracy and a republic? Well, a democracy is where the will of the people determines what's going to happen regardless of what's right and wrong. Whereas a republic, on the other hand, allows the democratic process, right? We choose representatives, but there are certain things that we don't vote on. There are certain principles that that are not debated or voted on, right? And so there's different forms of government, but I believe this. God can work through all forms of government. Again, Rome at this time was not our kind of government, and yet we know God used it to accomplish his purposes, Christ came into the world at a time under a government where it was possible for the message to spread. Just think about it. Rome had established roads that hadn't been there before. Uh, under Roman rule, there, there was roads that allowed the, the spreading of the gospel. There was Pax Romana, known as the Peace of Rome. This was generally a pretty settled time in the history of the world. Again, God can work through all forms of government. I hope you know this because ultimately he is sovereign. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah the prophet is disturbed, he's discouraged, because uh, in that year, King Uzziah had died. He was a king that had reigned for decades, but in the midst of that discouragement, what does he see? He sees the Lord high and lifted up and seated on the throne. In other words, Uzziah may be dead, but God is still on the throne. And so Paul says that those who resist authority or the government that that God has instituted, they're going to incur judgment. And it's not just punishment, it's, I believe, God's disfavor. Why? Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. What is really the purpose of governing authorities? When you get into Genesis, we're going to talk about the purpose of the family, right? The structure of the family. But what is the purpose of our governing authorities? I believe, number one, the purpose is to restrain evil, right? He says, if you do wrong, be afraid, right? God establishes governments and he gives them the right to punish evil. And really, it's their responsibility to do that. Now, we cannot, I hope you know this, we cannot legislate morality, Like, there is no law on earth that can make you a moral person. And so what we need the law to do is to legislate against immorality, right? Like, there's no law on the earth that can force you to love me, but I thank God there are laws that will keep you from killing me. Are you with me today? The laws that protect me, right? No laws can make a person honest, and so we have laws to keep people from stealing. Now, if only we would enforce those laws, that would help, right? But, but the government as a whole uh, is, is not here to make you good. The government's not here to sanctify you. That's the role of the family, and that's the role of the church. 
the role of the government is to keep you from evil. And the real problem in our government today is that we've lost, I think we've lost this focus, uh, they've lost this focus of restraining evil, and now they want to teach you their version of morality. In, in recent days, our government is more focused on forcing tolerance of evil than they are in punishing evil, but know this, that our God is too good not to punish evil. Paul writes this, they do not bear the sword in vain. They don't have the sword for nothing. <laughs> Speaking here about the sword of punishment, it's actually really here, there's many words for sword, but this is the sword of execution. I, I know capital punishment is a controversial subject, but Paul is really affirming the right of the government to punish certain crimes with certain punishments. You know, when we look at our prison system in America, there's really no biblical model for our jails. Biblically, there was restitution for certain crimes, meaning you had to pay back what you had stolen, and then there was death for others. I read somewhere that King Henry VIII once pardoned a man who was convicted of murder, and after pardoning him, the man went out and killed another man. And when friends came and asked the king to pardon this man once again, Henry VIII said this, no, he killed the first man, I killed the second man. He will not kill anymore. God has set up government to restrain evil, but also for this, to reward good. Look what he says there, do what is good and you will receive his approval. Listen, if you don't wanna drive down the Palisades in fear, constantly scanning the side of the road, looking in your rearview mirror, then don't speed. Okay, some of you need to hear that this morning. Don't speed, because for some of us, the last part of our body to be sanctified is the right foot, amen? It's tax season again, right? You have to April 15th to file your taxes and you should file your taxes and you should do it honestly, okay? Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. I heard a story of a letter that came to the IRS and there was $150 cash in the envelope and the, the letter read this, I did not pay all the taxes I should have last year and I've been unable to sleep so I've enclosed $150. If I'm still having trouble sleeping, I'll send the rest. If you don't want to be afraid of getting audited this year, pay the taxes you owe. You, you see, the government should reward, reward good, right? And it should discourage evil, right? And, and this is where we need to push back, I think, on this idea of separation of church and state. Because the truth is that nothing that is morally wrong should be politically correct. Our government should honor good citizens who keep the law, but it should also support causes that are morally right. And what is the voice that God has ordained to speak to issues of morality within the world? It is the church. Our government institutions should not only tell us what is right, but they should set the example by doing what is right. Because Paul says this, he says, they are servants of God. Continuing there in verse five, therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers, highlight that word, underline that word, ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Listen, you may not like how much you are taxed. Wait, you live in Rockland County. You don't like how much you are taxed, right? 
And, and, and we can argue some about the, the principle of taxation, but really, what does it give us? It gives us our roads, it gives us our sewers, it gives us our bridges, our judicial system, our law enforcement, our firefighters. And so we, we need to pay our taxes. Jesus paid his taxes. Again, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. So give your taxes to who the taxes are owed, but he also says this, give honor to whom honor is owed. I want to encourage you this week to find a civil servant and thank them. Give honor to where honor is due. Find a a police officer, find a firefighter, find a serviceman or woman, find a veteran, just say thank you. They are deserving of your honor, okay? Even if that policeman pulls you over, he's deserving of your honor, right? Listen, I, I think when we do wrong, we need to be very mindful to still show honor to those who are in authority. It's not our place, it's not your place to dishonor a police officer. We, as Christians, should be the most honoring of those who are in authority. Because we know that that place of authority that these men and women hold is a place that was ordained by God. Again, the word that Paul uses for these government officials, he uses it three times. It's the word minister. And so next time you do get pulled over and you roll down your window, there will be a minister of God standing right there at your window, right? Again, that word minister, it's the same word diakonos. It's the Greek word where we get our word deacon. It's the same word Paul uses to describe servants in the church. Now, why? Because these government authorities are divinely ordained by God, whether they know it or not. And so give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But understand, under the governmental structure that we live in, there's more than just giving you your, your tax dollars. We have the opportunity in this country to give our vote. Can I just say, while you still have time, if you're not registered to vote, register to vote. Be informed about the politics and the issues within our government. Get involved, because the climate that you and I are going to live under will affect our nation for the cause of Christ. Listen, I know that laws cannot change the heart. It's only the gospel that can bring lasting change. And so the most important thing for us as the church is to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the second most important thing is to ensure that we still have the freedom to do that in the years ahead. That's why I believe it's our responsibility to participate in the government that God has ordained for us. I also think it's our duty as the church to persuade our country to go in the direction of what is good and what is right, because we know this, the only hope for this nation is truth, and the only source of truth is the word of God, and you know this, you know the truth, the truth will set you free. For those that believe that, you know, we should stay out of government, we should just keep silent, we should not speak the truth to those in authority, remember this, the prophet Nathan confronted the King David in his sin. The prophet Elijah stood up to King Ahab and Jezebel. Daniel stood before King Nebuchadnezzar. John the Baptist, I don't know if you know this, he boldly called out King Herod and his sin. That's why he lost his head, right? And I believe this, that if the church stays silent, if our nation does not hear truth from the church, then truth will not be found because there's no other place to find truth. I just want to touch on one more thing before we close today. I want to get back to this idea of civil disobedience. Some of you are excited about that. But again, the key word is civil. Now, Paul doesn't mention this in his text, and I want to be very careful, even as I bring this up, because the sinful nature in us will always want a license to be rebellious, right? Are you with me? At the same time, I understand from Scripture that we have a biblical right to stand up for the Word of God. 
And so when the governments of man would try to establish laws that are contradictory to the word of God, then there is this right of civil disobedience. We see it in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They're asked to bow to the image they refused because they knew that the demands of that king stood opposed to the demands of the king of kings. And so they, they did not bow, and understand this, they were also ready to accept the punishment that they knew was going to come. Daniel himself knew the decree that no one should pray to anyone except for the king, and yet he showed civil disobedience in his prayers. Again, he was ready to accept the punishment that he knew would come. There's a few cases of civil disobedience throughout Scripture. Again, when the governments of man try uh, try to establish contradictory laws to the word of God, then we have the right of civil disobedience. In the book of Acts, chapter 4, the apostles are standing before the Sanhedrin. They were really the, the governing authority over the Jews at that time. And they tell the apostles, we, we want you to preach no more in the name of Jesus. Now, what was the response of Peter and John? It's right there in Acts chapter 4, verse 19. It says, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and we've heard. They're basically saying, you men judge for yourselves whether it's right to obey God or to obey man. They say, we're going to choose to obey God. But I also want to make this clear. When it comes to this place of civil disobedience, we're talking about things that are very clear in the word of God. And so if you get pulled over for doing 55 in a school zone, I don't know why I keep talking about speeding. Maybe somebody needs to hear that this morning. But if you get pulled over and the officer says to you, you were doing 50 in a school zone, you cannot say, well, God told me to do that. Okay, please don't say that, okay? When we talk about civil disobedience, it is in reference to specific laws that are made that are contradictory to the law that comes from God. And I think that in the years ahead, those cases in our lives are gonna have more and more to do with sharing our faith. Because in many countries around the world, it's already illegal to preach the gospel. It's already illegal to evangelize. It's against the law to win someone for Christ. And so I think we need to know ahead of time, what would we do if we were in that situation, right? If it's against the law of God, but God said to do it, I hope you're still going to get out there and share your faith. I hope you're going to get out there and still continue to do it, and you're going to be prepared for the consequences as they come. And if, and understand, this is not being rebellious just to be rebellious, I don't think that was the case with the apostles. I I don't think the apostles ever thumbed their nose at the authorities, right? I don't think they took the authority of the Sanhedrin lightly. They just knew this. Their first priority was to a higher authority. It's amazing because it's during all of the, the COVID lockdowns. You had many churches that closed their doors for 12, some 18 months. Many of those churches sadly don't even exist today. Why? Because they told people for over a year, not just by their words, but by their actions, that the gathering of the saints is not important. And so now they're saying, come back. And people are like, why do I need to do that? But the word of God tells us clearly to not neglect meeting together. Do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so if there is ever a situation again, okay, I'll just say this, where the government tells us we need to close our doors, they they tell us we can't meet together, I need you to understand my position, but it's the position of the leadership here as well. We must obey God rather than man. And so when we talk about civil disobedience, I, I think it's safe to say that is something that the Apostle Paul even practiced. 
You know how the Apostle Paul died, right? Spoiler alert here. (laughs) He was beheaded. His head was separated from his body. Why? Because he refused to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. Instead, he stood on the truth that he knew that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, we believe that Paul wrote the book of Romans somewhere around 58 A.D., But six years later, 64 AD, a historic event, maybe you heard about it in history class, some of you know it, was the great fire of Rome. There was a fire that broke out in Rome and it destroyed much of the city and the, the rumor was initially that Caesar Nero was the one who actually started the fire. But as that began to become public knowledge, Caesar Nero quickly thought, man, I need a scapegoat. I need somebody to blame for this. And so who did he blame? He blamed the Christians. He said, it's the Christians. They're the ones that are responsible for the fire. And when he said that, it set off a series of persecutions that were unbelievable. It got to the point where the Roman government would fill a coliseum with 50,000 people who would cheer as they watched Christians being torn to shreds by animals for sport. But know this, underneath that coliseum, in the catacombs, there were other Christians who were very aware of what was happening above and yet they prayed fervently that God would change what is going on. And their prayers had an impact, and change did eventually come. Can I just say, if it wasn't too late for Rome at that point, it's not too late for America, if if our nation would only turn to God and repent. If our nation would understand, man, we are off track morally. We, We need to get back to the principles that made us a great nation. But where are they going to understand that? Who are they going to know that from if not from the church? And so, again, I believe that as the church, we have a role in seeing that come about. And so four things I would encourage you in regards to government. Number one, participate in government. Secondly, everybody's favorite, pay your taxes. Persuade those who are in authority. But there's one more P you cannot ignore. Please don't forget to pray. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all peoples, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. Lord, we thank you for the challenge of Scripture. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that it lays out for us very clearly the order that you have established. And so, Lord, today we do pray for those in in authority over us. Lord God, we pray that as the church that we would be an honoring people. Lord, even when we don't agree with the decisions that that are made, Lord, that we still honor the individual. Lord, and at the same time, Lord, I pray that our voices would be heard. I pray that we as a church would not be silent about things that your word clearly says are true, Lord, that we would stand on your truth, Lord God, that we would stand on your word, Lord God, and that you would use us for your purpose and for your plan. We give you thanks. Hallelujah. Would you stand with me as we prepare to close today? Just lift up your worship to the Lord. I just want to encourage you, if there's something that the Lord has highlighted during the message today, just give it over to him and receive from him. Amen.